Matt, I have an initial question. Okay. Who, who is your favorite 20th century Egyptian politician? Are you a Na- are you a Nasser head? Are you a Sadat <laughs> guy? What's your stance um, on the Suez Canal? Uh, well, uh, this is a period of history I wasn't quite prepared for. I have to say, um, I don't know who who do you recommend? Uh, see, this is the thing: is like a lot of people have a lot of things to say about <laughs> Nasser. Uh, you know, human rights, uh, subjugation, but you know. You have to give it to Sadat. He had the the chutzpah to at least get assassinated in office. Yeah, the- I appreciate a politician who has you know the wherewithal to withstand political upheaval, and the only way you can get rid of them is with a bullet to the head. I mean, I do like I do like you know King Farouk. I'm a big King Farouk fan, mainly for the um the fact that he owns this incredible. Or he did own this incredibly rare coin that was smuggled out of the United States. What was it? Was it a commemorative coin, or it was? A, it was the nineteen thirty-three. I think I have to look this up. Nineteen thirty-three silver, no golden eagle. Right, it was this like thing that was minted um, just before the gold standard was ended, and um, all of the gold coins were supposed to have been like melted down, and this one basically got smuggled out of the United States, um, and uh, yeah, and then there was a huge. Thing about whether it was whether it was a legal tender and to, to what degree like it was allowed to have left the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it fetched thirty million dollars at auction. Um, oh, wow. Well, also uh, yeah. I think a very relevant question as well as who's your favorite Ramses? There's like what twelve of them to pick from. Well, well, this is why we have our our guest with us today, um, Doctor Anne Austin, and uh, I will let you introduce yourself, Anne. But I want to say before I do this, like. I was just saying before we came on air, right? Like I, most many of the people we've interviewed on the podcast so far, I know and have known for a long time through tattoo history circles. Um, and Anne, I've never spoken to before, um, and I'm very excited to do so. Mainly because when I was putting together my book, like this stuff we're talking about today, I think was the stuff I knew literally nothing about, really very little about, and I learned so much from reading your work, Anne. And um, I was really nervous and kind of anxious about like synthesizing it and trying to turn your professional complex Egyptology, you know, with my completely non-specialist head on into something that made sense um, for, you know, a short chapter in a popular book. And I was so, I was so nervous about it. Um, And when the book came out, I was really nervous about you reading it. And um, yeah, I'm just, because I feel just... Like I learned, I've learned more from you reading your stuff uh, than I have from any tattoo history in a very long time, and I'm so happy to be able to talk to you today. Wow, that's a big setup for the rest of this interview. <laughs> 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 I well, thank you for saying that. I um, hope that it, even though it's very Egyptological, that it's accessible too. Yeah, that's what I want. and that's why I'm excited to be here because I hate it when academics only write to other academics. And hundred percent. Not what it should be. So, so yeah, I will. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, Anne, Anne, who who is your favorite Ramses? Oh, that's a great t- question. So, <laughs> uh, Ram- Ramses II is the one who lived forever, right? He lived until his nineties. He had hundreds of children. 
he uh, has condoms named after him, <laughs> which is an irony right there. <laughs> and he was such an usurper. So he was a smart guy. What he'd do, he'd find other people's statues and then he would carve out their names and he would carve his name over them. Smart. He, he knew that since he did it, someone else could. So he, you can put your arm into his name because he always <laughs> carved it so deep so nobody could replace his name. So for all of those reasons, he's he's quite the Ramses, and he's the reason why everyone else named themselves Ramses. They were like, and because the ones that followed weren't his kids, they weren't related to him, even though he had all those children. They were from the next generation of kings and they, uh, the next dynasty, and they just were like, that guy, well, <laughs> we want to have his name since it's <laughs> everywhere, right? Which is pretty genius. So, uh, yeah, if you're enjoying 20th century Egyptian pharaoh dynasty talk, uh, you're very welcome to Beneath the Skin if you've made it this far into the episode. There's no loafer talk on this episode. <laughs> we are at the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing, and as Matt said, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Anne Austin. This is an episode that a lot of people have asked about, maybe because a lot of our fans own too many of those Egyptology books when they were children and got obsessed with mummies. But it is, you know, a fascinating journey into tattoo history, particularly before, you know, modernity. And also it ha it, Egypt, it seems like in general, is like shrouded in like a lot of hearsay, a lot of like 500th hand stories that like are probably apocryphal and it blends in with tattooing and we've talked about it briefly on the show before but we decided that it was important to bring in an expert because Matt unfortunately despite his best efforts is not an expert in everything no. well on the on the thing I did for insider I talk about tattoos in movies one of the f films they asked me to talk about was the tattoos in the mummy film and they are hilariously terrible, um, which I also want to talk to you about. So I don't know, like before we get really off on tangents, like can you introduce yourself, Anne, and tell us, tell our listeners at least who you are and what you do? <laughs> yeah, of course. So my name is Anne Austin. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. And my background and research is in both bioarchaeology and Egyptology. So I look at human remains. I look at mummified people in Egypt. But I'm really approaching understanding tattooing, understanding health, medicine, whatever topic I'm looking at through both the human remains and the text that we have and the arts and the broader canon of stuff from Egypt, which is something that um, many places you can't do. And we're really fortunate where I have this just wealth of information. So I've been working on tattooing in ancient Egypt uh, since 2014, technically. It's when we first found this very heavily tattooed woman. And this was not uh, something I was planning on studying. I didn't pursue tattooing. It kind of was thrust upon me. And I'm, I'm very happy that that's the case. Um, and yeah, she was, she was a, kind of out of nowhere. Suddenly we, we didn't have any other references, uh, in terms of physical human remains, at least the period that I studied to tattooing. And she was this very heavily tattooed woman that I was suddenly trying to figure out. And since then I've kept going down that path and found more evidence of tattooing. And, uh, it's become a focus of my work. 
And how did you how did you get into all this? Like, were you uh, were you a kid who was obsessed with the you know the sarcophaguses and the Scooby Doo episodes, or like what was your story to get into Egyptology and studying this stuff in the first place? So originally, my family was really into Egypt. My mom was fascinated with Egypt. My sister had taken classes at the University of Michigan, where she studied Egyptology, and when she was in college and studying, my family was inspired to go to Egypt. So I was really fortunate. Um, at the time I got to go, I got to visit. I was pretty young and I didn't think, you know, when I got there, I was interested as much as any average kid. But while we were there, I had so many questions and our tour guide couldn't answer a lot of them um, because we just didn't know. And so one of the things that this revelation I had while I was there is that we know so much about the kings of Egypt. We know so much about the dates that various events occurred. We have this very elitist view of Egypt, but the everyday questions about daily life are things that are actually still being uncovered and discovered. So when I was there, I had that revelation. And, um, and after that, I still wasn't sure that was a path I was going to go down, but I got interested in archaeology. I pursued archaeology as an undergraduate, and it came back to those same questions. When I wanted to study and ask questions about daily life in the places that I was working, like I was working in Jordan in this Neolithic site, really beautiful, cool site, no text, no other way to answer those questions. And it came back to, wow, I can't answer these questions in these other places, but I can in Egypt. And that's where I got excited because I thought, wow, there are things that we, we think Egypt's known. We think we've done it all. And actually, there's so much yet to be discovered. And the tattooing evidence is a perfect example of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good like general you know, account of kind of how I don't know. I think, like in general, why tattoo history is super interesting because, yeah, it is in many cases like this very intimate, individualized practice that gives us a really kind of tangible, particularly in the case of like surviving human bodies from thousands of years ago, gives us a really like tangible connection to people in the past, and 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 is you know is in many cases the story of this like. Yeah, unseen set of individual stories that are otherwise lost up in this sort of grand man, grand family set of histories, and I, it's why I, I I think the whole the whole approach of thinking about tattooing in that way um, is is really productive, and it's it's super exciting that 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 applies as much in ancient Egypt as it does in you know contemp contemporary life. I think um, one thing I was going to ask Anne is obviously one of the biggest challenges that people have for like studying of people who were tattooed thousands of years ago is obviously the preservation of bodies. We talked about that on one of our very first episodes. And I want you to, for people who are unfamiliar, kind of talk about what makes Egypt and particularly ancient Egypt specifically unique in that we have these like really well preserved specimens and the conditions around it. Obviously we know about mummies and burial rites and this sort of thing, but can you give us like a crash course of why it's so important to be studying this in this region? Sure. One interesting thing about Egypt is the way that uh, Egypt, most of its history operated, was based off of the Nile. So when the Nile would flood every year, 
It would bring these really rich silts. It was really easy to cultivate. But what that also meant was everybody was living on the edges of the Nile. And the areas that you could cultivate and live were pretty restricted to that, which meant that you didn't have to actually go that far to be in a desert, in a desert-like environment. And this is pretty ideal for something like mummification, because in the very earliest periods of Egyptian history, people were mummified just by nature of being buried. They were, they were buried in these drier spaces, these more desert-like environments, and their skin would preserve for thousands of years without anything being done to, to it. And so that is really ideal for us in terms of preservation. At some point in Egyptian history, they started to shift toward actually um, putting people in tombs where that natural environment needed to be replicated artificially. So they took actions like adding salt to the body to dry it, um, putting resins on the skin. But even those actions go back to what we were just discussing, because most of the mummies that people have studied from museums and used to explain how mummification occurred, most of them are really elite. They're the people who had the most money, the people who were royal, had the most access. There was a really interesting recent um, discovery of the embalming materials that people use. They, they actually uncovered them and then did chemical analysis to figure out what they were. And they were finding things from across the world. So this is the average Egyptian is not going to be able to get something from India to mummify themselves. Uh, so when I'm working, I'm working in a site that are pretty well-to-do people, but actually they still have really simple burial practices. They are not doing this big, crazy mummification. And yet they're preserved because they happen to be in these tombs that are just like perfect for our conservators, perfect preservation. I put uh, monitor, environmental monitoring inside these tombs and I put one in before the pandemic started. So I couldn't get back to it for a couple of years. And in those years that passed, the temperature only varied by two degrees Celsius the whole time. And the humidity was pretty comparable to that too. So it's a cool discovery because it basically when we're looking at it, even in those more later periods where they're not just burying someone simply in the desert, they're still smart enough to figure out how to bury them in a way that they get the preservation they need without importing stuff from India. So, yeah, in the in the book, I I, I write about the the Gabeline man and the, the, the Gabeline uh, woman as well, these naturally preserved uh, bodies from pre-dynastic Egypt, so about, what, three and a half thousand years old? Is that about right? Something, but, sorry, three and a half thousand years BC, so about five and a half thousand years ago. Um, and their tattoos weren't discovered until like 2012 or something like that. They were, they were like... They were sitting in plain sight with the tattoos not visible. But am I right that there's a there's this thinking that the practice of deliberately embalming and 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 preserving bodies is thought in some senses to be kind of try like deliberately not trying to replicate those um, naturally preserved bodies that they somehow the 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 the, the era of the pharaohs they saw these naturally preserved mummies from the desert and thought we should we should try and do that deliberately. Exactly. They said we should do that deliberately and then add something to make it even more unique or elite or make their what what beautiful mummification looks like changes over time, too. So, for <laughs> instance, at one point um, in that you can visit in Egypt today, you can go to the National Museum of Culture, the NEMEC, 
And they've just opened this museum. They have the royal mummies there. So you can see what perfect mummification looks like during the period that I work in. Uh, a little later than that, the whole state falls apart and they can't keep <laughs> safe. They can't keep tombs safe. Tombs get violated. And even the royal tombs people break into and steal things from. So mummification changes because they can't guarantee that somebody's going to have everything in their tomb. So they basically build it all into the body. Um, so instead of assuming you're going to have a coffin forever, you know, somebody's coffin was just stolen. So you change the mummification so that it's basically like the coffin is built in. They changed the, what they put on the outside of the body so that instead of having uh, this beautiful wooden coffin that's imported from Lebanon, which you can't get anymore, they do a kind of, uh, it's, it's more like a paper mache essentially where it's cardinage and it's something that is molded to the body. So you can't steal it without breaking it and you can't use it again. So it's really fascinating too to think about how like their intentional versions of mummification change based on the geopolitical climate at the time. Amazing. And, and speaking of these kind of yeah, desecrated sites or, or, or things that are a bit more haphazard, maybe that's a good segue into your 2014 discovery. Um, do you want to just describe that for the listeners? Because I, 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 I said I've, I've read uh, everything you've written about it and um, I'd love to hear your own account of it in your own words. Like, so you, you were early in your career there, quite young and working at this site in Deir El Medina, is that right? Yeah, so I work at Daryl Medina. It was where I did my dissertation, and I've been working there since. Uh, I'm very biased, but I think it's one of the top three sites in the ancient world. I'm like a whole ancient world, ancient Egypt for sure. And the reason why is this was the village of the workmen and their families who uh, who made the king's tombs during the New Kingdom. So from the New Kingdom is from 1550 to a, a little before 1100. Uh, BCE, so over 3,000 years ago. And what's really interesting about this village um, is that they were doing this hard manual labor, but they were also still the royal artisans, and the king treated them really well. So they were given housing, they were given food, they were given paid time off, Um, they were highly literate. And at one point in antiquity, they tried to dig this giant hole to get to the water table. It's huge. It's 30 meters wide and 50 meters deep. And it failed. And so what do you do when you have like a giant hole (laughs) right next to where you live? You just throw stuff in there. It became the trash dump. And the trash they threw in was uh, writing on stone or writing on pottery that they didn't use anymore. And so it was filled with thousands of daily life texts. And they're the kinds of texts you would find in your trash bin, right? So we have receipts, we have pay stubs, we have letters, we have people's wills, we have all kinds of things that make it easier to know what life was like in this village. Angry notes between people of uh, someone ate my lunch, I want to know who it is when I find you. (laughs) No, we have some, I mean, if you want to do a a Real Housewives of the Ancient World, this is the place to do it. (laughs) We know, like, who had Well, denial is a river in Egypt, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we know, uh, we have this will of a woman who cut her children out because they weren't taking care of her in her old age. Like, we know the gossip. It's great, right? So... What's fascinating about this village is even though we have thousands upon thousands of texts, when I started working there in 2013, really fully in 2013, um, nobody had studied the human remains at the site. 
So it was first studied and explored by Bernard Briere and the French Institute of Oriental Archaeology in the early 20th century, from the 1920s to the 1950s. And at that time, it just wasn't very common that people in Egypt studied human remains. Um, additionally, these tombs had been looted heavily since antiquity, so people were literally torn apart. Their arms, legs, bodies were completely ripped to pieces. That was one of the things that really surprised me when I first started reading your work was was the account of, you know, of like, okay, yeah, it was like oh, these have just been sitting here. Like we didn't even they weren't even sort of discovered by you, so to speak, but they they'd just been sitting there ignored by scientists for the best part of half a century because they were of normal people quite normal people they weren't that interesting and that itself is such an interesting insight into like i know the problems with academic history and the limits of the kind of stuff you're just talking about about what kind of history gets told because you know it it struck I, i i was almost kind of aghast that like of your account of like this 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 body this this woman's body just sort of sitting there and no one has really paid attention to it even though it was it was there i mean i don't know if in in plain view is the right description but well i'll explain that so i mean so what's interesting is many egyptologists have studied this site because of the text i just described and i when i first started working there i think there was a sentiment of well these tombs have been looted we don't really know it's hard to date material from the tombs. It's hard to know um, that there's much of a value that's left behind. And it's this different perspective on what's valuable. So for a lot of people, it was the paintings on the walls or those texts that had value. And ironically, the people who made those paintings and the people who wrote those texts weren't really perceived as having value um, to be studied or conserved or any other actions. So when I work the tomb that I found this woman in, I work inside the tombs. And one of the reasons is because that's where the human remains are. It's easier to keep them where they were intended to be. Their conservation is better. Um, They are left in these kind of broken pieces in the tomb. So I I do all my work inside. This is a tomb that I was working in um, in 2013 and 14. It's a tomb of a a workman called Ari Neffer. And it's in these tombs, you'd bury not just the person, the workman, but also his family. So this had not only him, his family, it probably, it, we know for a fact, actually, it had people even from the latest periods of this site. And we found the artifacts with their names on them among the human remains. So even though it's hard to date the human remains because of the way they've been broken apart, we've got this other contextual clues. And like I said, since mummification changes over time, it also gives us some hints about who's there versus if it was, for instance, these later burials, people used the site for burial much later. Um, so I'm working inside the tombs and, and often where I'm working is not the pretty decorated painted area, which is not the place where they keep the human remains. They move them, the, the Egyptologist that is, move them to some of the other parts of the tomb. These tombs have, you, they're cut into a limestone cliff. So you usually have to descend into them like down a shaft for example in a rickety ladder uh, and they are only lit by the lighting you bring so there is no there's no sunlight where i work so i come back from egypt without a tan and everyone's confused <laughs> um, and inside these tombs i'm 
kind of sorting through the human remains and what's left behind and trying to put them in a better state and work on their conservation and inventory and just figure out who's even there. And this tomb that I was working in was open to the public. So when they opened it to the public, they moved all the human remains next door. And I was actually, I could see people walk. They could, they didn't know I was there, but I could see them walking by me uh, because I was around the corner from where you walk into the tomb. And the human remains were stored in the things that you could find in Egypt. Sometimes it's hard to get access to big conservation boxes and things like that. So they were stored in the boxes you'd use for fruit. They were stored in um, large rice bags, for instance. And so her body was found, I found her in a large rice bag and she was there alone on her own, which was to me interesting because most of them were quite stuffed and hers wasn't. And she uh, we didn't have her head, we didn't have her legs, we didn't have her hands, but we had her torso and arms. And when I took her out, um, I saw these markings at her neck. And I at first assumed actually that these weren't tattoos, but were rather painted on because often when you bury a mummy, you put amulets on the body as protections. And so I thought, well, just like we were talking about with these defensive burials where they're trying to stop people from breaking in, they'd go and uh, paint something on to protect the woman. But as I looked closer, I saw that really this was part of her skin. And I kind of stepped back for a moment. And keep in mind, this isn't a dark tomb where all I have is a lamp that I brought with me. Um, I kind of moved the lamp and moved my head to start looking at her in different angles. And I start realizing that it's not just her neck but that she is covered, her arms are covered in tattoos. And as I looked closer, I saw some were more faded than others. Some were, uh, you could see that where they'd started to um, have a kind of dispersed edges so that it wasn't something that could have been painted on. It really was something that was part of the skin. And my colleagues, Federico Bay and I photographed her and started immediately trying to use those photos because this is a mummified individual. Their skin is shrunk. It's changed dramatically over the thousands of years since she was alive. So we started manipulating these photos and trying to really pull the photos apart, almost like we're bringing her skin back to its original shape. And as we did that, suddenly things that in the tomb you couldn't make out became clear. And we see, saw not just that she had all of these tattoos, but that they had figural connections to the kinds of symbolism we're finding all over that area. So that was um, completely unbelievable. I mean, it was... Yeah. When had she been put in a bag? So who... who? So that was the French archaeological team back in the 50s? So always blame no, the French. More, no, no. Yeah, blame actually, the French. Actually, that was actually more recent when they were preparing this tomb uh, for display. And so I can't... I don't know exactly who... <laughs> who did it. I'm not going to point fingers. Okay. You're behind the paywall, say, Anne. You can, you can fire <laughs> shots at people. It's okay. Right. I will say it's... it's. It did take my eyes some adjusting. And I'm sure whoever did that, you know, they weren't aware. They didn't realize the significance yeah. of, of any of these people. And having tried to figure out how to store all of these people currently for myself, it is not an easy task. So... I, uh, I I will say that that happened in the 2000s because I found newspaper with the remains from the 2000s. But I, I'm not going to... I mean, that's even less excusable, as far as I'm concerned. 
Oh, I was just going to ask, and uh, sorry, Matt, if I'm about to do anthropology hour, I know you have beef with them, but I want to ask... Some of my about- best friends are anthropologists, as I always yes, say. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I-, I want to ask, from your research and what you know, what can you kind of infer about tattooing's place within culture at that time? So one thing that's really interesting is that we are pretty much exclusively finding tattoos either in human remains or in depictions on women. And it is a very gendered practice in Egypt for most of its history. So I work in the New Kingdom, but that's true of the Middle Kingdom as well. Um, And those are the two best documented periods through dynastic history. We don't have much evidence from the Old Kingdom. And the pre-dynastic period that we mentioned, we do have men who are tattooed. So there's clearly a change over time. That's thousands of years between the pre-dynastic and the Middle Kingdom. So it's not surprising that there's change. But by the time we have the Middle and New Kingdom periods that we see so much, like most of our evidence of tattooing in ancient Egypt, it's an extremely gendered practice. So you're saying Ramses II didn't have a sick back piece? Not that we know of yet. <laughs> no, we do have his human remains, so we can double check. But we aren't seeing it. No, we're seeing that it's really done um, on women. Who knows? We don't have any depictions of it. So going back to like, we have a site that's got all these texts and really well-documented site. No texts in, that I've ever found are clear and unambiguous references to tattooing. No depictions that I've ever found are clear and unambiguous depictions of someone getting or, rece- or giving a tattoo. So it is, I think it just shows like we need to study the past through many different lenses because it's always the biases of one that that can be unveiled by another. And what happens a lot, and this is true even of like, you know, like um, another famous tattooed, you know, preserved tattooed body culture is the Pazarix from Siberia, much younger than the specimens Anne's talking about. But those people are described in Greek texts and they're occasionally described as being kind of marked but the extent of the tattoos that have been discovered on those bodies in terms of the figuration, in terms of the genders, in terms of the aesthetics, just don't get mentioned. And part part of the thinking of that, right, is that if it if it's so common, if it's a really common practice, um, no one bothers writing it down because it's just something that sort of happens all the time and isn't really worth remarking upon. Um, but I think, I mean, what, what struck me about um, do, you, do you what do you refer, how do you refer to the, the 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 woman that you discovered? Do you call her? Is it? Do you have a kind of name for her? So I don't, and I I am careful with names for the people I work on simply yeah. because I told you I know all their dramas. I would like hate <laughs> to give someone like I would hate to name someone Paneb and he's not Paneb because he Paneb <laughs> was not a. Nice you don't guy. want to do a Jane Goodall on us. Yeah. <laughs> and there was there was a the. The, the gay blind man get, got called like quite kind of rudely and dismissively like ginger for a long time because he had like red hair mm-hmm. and, and now people have just called him the gay blind man. But so, but she, she, what struck me and really what blew me away uh, with her is as you, as you, as you were starting to say, like the extent of her tattoos. So, I mean, the, the one that, the thing you talked about her throat, right? That, that is to me just, brilliant it, am I, it's a, a hieroglyph that means something like mm. do good is that is that right yeah yeah exactly yeah so she has on her throat she actually has uh, six different figures and uh she has these baboons and a wajed eye and the wajed eye is an egyptian goddess or go- it's a divine eye 
And it's usually used for protection. And so for me, I thought, okay, protection on the throat, that makes sense. But then below that, it has two nephra symbols, which mean in Egyptian beauty, but when they write beauty, it's it's not just external beauty, it's internal too. So it's beauty, it's goodness, it's it's a really is a beautiful way to describe beauty because it's more than that aesthetic um, meaning to it. And so it has those two nephra symbols, and on either side it has blazed eyes. And in Egyptian, you can read that from the middle out to either side. So it says to do good, to do good, and it's right over her voice box. So we we argue that she's you know able to do extra good, to do good with this divine eye too, not just the regular eye which you could write it with a normal eye, and it would have the same meaning. But here it's a divine eye, so it's to do good with a divine ability right on her voice box. So anytime she spoke, saying if she was using her voice for healing, and honestly, if she was using her voice just to say, hey, how are you? It would yeah. still have that to do good connection. And and that, I mean, from, from um, that, and that's quite unusual. She's, she's one of the most extensively and kind of esoterically tattooed Egyptian, tattooed Egyptian specimens we know about, right? Yeah, we, we literally... Imagine assuming that no one really tattooed in Egypt. It was just usually people assumed it was the Nubian folks that were in Egypt that were tattooing. And if we saw marks, maybe they were henna or it was maybe just an experiment and they had one experimental tattoo. Imagine going from where we live in a society of one or two maybe experimental tattoos to seeing a woman walking down the street with half sleeves and back tattoos and neck tattoos. It was kind of, it, to go from zero basically to that was a huge, huge leap. And yeah, I was going to ask, um, obviously in our episode we did with uh, fellow archaeologist Aaron, Aaron Dieter Wolf talked about like the difficulty in kind of quantifying how common tattooing was because of like the misclassification of a lot of, fi- of findings. Like, do you find that you're finding a lot of objects that you think, oh, this could have been used for tattooing, could have been used as something else, and do you see kind of a reclassification of stuff that might have been discovered before? What do you understand about how they were done? We have two tattoo bundles that people have argued maybe were for tattooing. They're, they're needles uh, done in copper sheets that were then folded and hammered together to make a sharp needle. And they were found... One in the pre-dynastic context, one in the 18th dynasty. Those are times where we have tattooing. But this is, imagine over thousands of years, um, a huge civilization. Those, that's it so far that people have suggested. And even then, it's hard to know because those bundles could have been for other functions too. So we don't have any definitive evidence. And because we don't have any depictions, we really only have the human remains to go off of in terms of figuring out how these were done. The, the recent research that Aaron has been doing, doing on looking with, especially with um, Danny Rode, who's been doing the tattooing on himself, they've done some experimental work, right? Figuring out, okay, if we look at these instruments and try to tattoo in these ways, what does that look like on the body after it's healed? And that I think will be really helpful moving forward to see if we can learn a little more about how these were applied or uh, often I get asked what kind of inks they used, and I don't really know. I can't say. I could say that if it was the same ink that they were using in daily life, it's a charcoal black that yeah, we that find. Seemed, that seems to me places. the most plausible, right? Yeah, so that's yeah. always what I say. I, I think it probably is. 
I can't say for sure, but that's what makes the most sense. And the, the other thing that struck me, and this is also goes to the kind of commonality question about about this woman, is that the story about um, again blame the French. This like fact that many of the tattooed uh, bodies that were found, as you said, were women, and of course, like there was this assumption that in you know late 19th early 20th century europe well who gets tattoos what kind of women get tattoos prostitutes so therefore these tattooed women must be must be sex workers must be kind of concubines must be and there's this weird kind of backwards logic happening and what i thought was again super interesting about your work and about this this woman is that she is a is a real powerful data point against that idea which had already started to erode anyway but you're working on you not just not just in the context of tattoo history but also in the kind of um the limits of 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 a particular kind of colonial particular kind of you know gentlemanly early 20th century archaeological history right so completely the the first tattooed bodies that were found and really the only ones found for a long time were three women from the middle kingdom they were found in a royal context they were found with these high elite titles, like uh, one had a title called Sole Ornament of the King, but it really it's a kind of lady-in-waiting type equivalent. They were found with fancy grave goods, like things made out of gold and silver. And when you look at what people wrote about these women, they were... It's, a, it's a incredible. And, you know, I had to look up some of these French words that you don't learn in high school French. <laughs> Sex workers, something like that. It is fascinating just to see how they they kind of went through crazy mental gymnastics to erode these women's social status in order to fit this mo- this you know model yeah. they had of what tattooed women must be, and that just continued. And I'll say it started in the 20th century. We still I have references from the 21st century that still bring in. Some of those same words, maybe they're adapted a little, um, but they still talk about how these women are immoral, for example, yeah. which is insane. So, so they get called, is, some of them get called like brides for the dead, don't they? Sometimes there's that oh, kind yeah, of there's idea. There's this notion that like, why would you bury a, a, a female fertility figurine in a dar- burial context? Oh, clearly it's to, for the tomb owner, this man to have his own fertility in the afterlife for him to have some, his sexual potency in the afterlife. doesn't matter that some of those figurines were found in living co- context, right? It, they suddenly get only really this one male gaze for their function and tattooing fit completely into that model. So it's been exciting to be able to push back on that. And the evidence we're finding is just, much more complex. So I'm, it's not to say that tattooing can't be erotic in Egypt. I think it certainly had that component to it, but it's a lot more than that. Well, there, I mean, this also is complicated, I guess, by, and this was something again, which I had to spend a lot of time trying to get my head around because it was completely new to me, but was this, this cult of Hathor, right? Who, who this woman that you discovered has symbols on her too, which is also seems to me to be right. Linked in with fertility and with, motherhood in a kind of complicated way so yeah how so how does this woman fit in with Hathor and what's what's that relationship with fertility and her tattoos and things like yeah. that one of one of those tattoos that we took a photo of and then stretched and I remember the minute that Cedric and I were looking at the photo and both of us our eyes just popped because what looked very difficult to see in real life when we were able to modify the image 
we saw these two cows for the goddess Hathor wearing a necklace that was affiliated with her. It's called the Menat necklace. And they're standing up opposite her, her opposite each other on her arm, on her lower uh, arm. And it was just a light bulb moment because that is an undeniable connection to Hathor. Um, and then as we looked over her body, we found more signs that had connections to Hathor either directly or indirectly. So what's unexpected about that is during this period of Egyptian history, the actual written title, Priestess of Hathor, that you'd see before someone's name, doesn't exist. It's, it's disappeared. It used to exist. And in fact, one of those three tattooed women that were found before all of this in the early 20th century, her name is Amuna, and she had a title, Priestess of Hathor. And yet, we don't see that title in the New Kingdom. And some people said that it must mean that their bodies are too impure to be able to be priestesses. Um, and here we have a permanent mark of a goddess all over her body, regardless of her menstruation, childbirth, purification rituals, any of that, she will always have these divine marks on her. So, um, so she is definitely connected to Hathor without that title, which to me tells me that women could have important religious roles in the community and in daily life that may not have required those titles. And it may have come out in ways that we aren't we aren't seeing in the text because these are the kinds of daily life things that maybe people didn't write down. Um, women were not also the author of most of the texts that we write read. So we're, our texts are very biased toward men's experiences. And if tattooing is a woman's uh, experience for the most part, yeah. then it's not showing up. And I was also I was also struck in the same way with how those symbols. Again, as we see in tattooing all through history, but it's something that not many people have paid much attention to. Those those symbols of 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 the the cow symbol and some of the others they're they're also featured in graffiti and in objects at the site. So there's this kind of visual culture landscape in which these tattoos exist, right? Exactly. And when we look at the graffiti, sometimes they are actually engraved in the floor of the Temple of Hathor, yeah. which I think is such a beautiful connection to being tattooed in the skin of a woman associated with this goddess. So we know that the Egyptians would see these and they had a whole visual language that we are just now starting to uncover. And that tattooing is a part of how we're uncovering it, which is really exciting. And I know, I mean, um, one of the little pushbacks that you got from um, uh, uh, another scholar basically was that, like, how 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 do you know that, like, this... Like the, these tattoos weren't just, you know, they weren't just kind of cool tattoos of the, like, you know, there was a kind of shared visual culture language. Um, what's the, what's the kind of further evidence, or how would you, how would you respond to that kind of argument that, you know, even just assuming that tattoos equal status is a, is a bit of a leap too far, and that there are other potential, you know, that there, there is at least, I mean, I, I've, I talked about this even in, in the context of Otzi, you know, like there is, there is. It's not that plausible, but there is a there is a possibility that he was the first ever guy that got a tattoo, and he was this hipster in the village, and like you know, he's not representative of. He was the original Matt Lauder. He he was yeah, yeah, yeah. the oh, in a small beanie with Japanese loafers on. Well, you know, I'm not. I he, could definitely not take claims as did, an originator. He did have very fancy shoes on him. To be o- fair, o- so. he did have very fancy shoes. Matt Lauder um, is the but- modern Nazi. <laughs> But you, but you know what I mean, you know what I mean, Anne, right? So that's that's yeah. again like one certainly for people who don't who aren't immersed in Egyptology. There's that methodological question of like how do you separate 
uh, tattoos that just happen to be on someone to tattoos that are significant? Sure. Yeah, I think that aesthetic component is is always a question, especially because the tattoos can have both functions. So seeing them as having an aesthetic function um, can't it it can add to, but it doesn't necessarily negate these other things. Yeah, One way I that think we I agree are, with that. are really fortunate is that because I'm at this site that has this really rich research history and these really rich texts means I can look at that visual language for the tattoos and and tell you exactly what an ancient Egyptian would have thought when they saw these tattoos. That's that's the most you, interesting thing for me. Yeah, and I can also tell you where they're finding them else, what, where else they're finding them and um, how they're connected. So a good example is were these tattoos of of uh, four women, were they functioning in some specific way? And when I look at where else those tattoos appear as tattoos, where they're, they're put on bodies, an interesting uh, place that we're finding them is on these hand-modeled figurines that yeah. were always of women. They were always showing them as pregnant, and they have these small marks that are placed on them. These um, are the paddle dolls, right? No, these ones are, this, there's a new article that I just co-authored with my colleague, Mary Lee Sarnett, who's at Johns Hopkins ah, cool. University, and she studied the fi figurines, and we were both working at the site at the time, and when she was looking at them, she brought one to me, and she said, this looks like a tattoo, and I said, yeah, that actually looks like a tattoo of somebody I was just looking at, so... When we were looking at these, the question is, why do the tattoos show up on these hand-modeled figurines of pregnant women, but not on the figurines that we, we also have that are made, um, you know, both more mass-manufactured? And these are ones that, that when we look at the tattoos that they have, we look at the fact that they're often shown pregnant. We look at the placement of these tattoos. They're all in the sphere of things that are connected to childbirth, maternity, pregnancy. And so we have the ability to pull these things together. And um, so we're seeing it in the figurines. We're seeing it in the ostraca that depict women nursing their children. We're seeing it in the beds that they slept on and the kinds of protections they wrote around those beds, the depictions of those beds. All of that data we can put together and really build out how an ancient Egyptian seeing these tattoos would have connected them with this broader sphere of childbirth and, and fertility. Yeah. See that this is, that, that's why I've, you know, as Tom, Tom was joking about my hatred of anthropologists, but um, I think that's the, that's the difference between a kind of art, logical, art, art, art historical kind of material culture object approach to history, which starts with the objects and thinks about reception Compared to one that is overly determinative on on um, de trying to determine uh, you know intention of the maker, which I think is much more difficult uh, in in many cases to determine. And I yeah, I think as you just explained, it, I think that's such such an important thing to think about. Yeah, like almost it doesn't really matter what that person meant to do when they put it on their body, but we can understand from context what the affects of seeing these images would have been and that can build up a, a different or more rich kind of picture right yeah exactly I, the intentionality is so frustrating <laughs> because yeah. it, like you said it's not uncoverable but um especially even with tattoos today when you walk down the street and people see your yeah. tattoo they are going to receive it however they exactly. receive it and so in some ways intentionality even in modern context it 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 matters in 
some questions and in other questions That's it, it doesn't. Art historians have no theory of intentionality. At least contemporary art historians don't. Right, we're not that interested in why people do things. Um, <laughs> like, so, uh, are, are you still working on on her? Uh, is she still got things to reveal? Are, are you f- thinking about uh, other sites? Like, what's what's the what's the current status of, of your research on her and, and, and on tattooing more more broadly? So, I am still working with the French Institute of Oriental Archaeology at Daryl Medina. I go back every January to work. That's when our field season happens in January and February. And because this site is one where we really didn't have much study of human remains prior to the work that I was doing, we are, we, I have a lifetime worth of work that I could do <laughs> at this yeah. site. Um, and so, I've been working in other tombs where we have similar preservation. We have similar issues with looting. We, we have a similar need for conservation. Um, and I, in each of those tombs, am going through and studying the human remains. And as I do that, I'm looking for not just tattooing, but also evidence of their health experiences, of, uh, you know, their demography, of their relatedness. But tattooing keeps coming up. So she's not, she was the first, but she's not the only person with tattoos that we found at the site. And now we have found more and more evidence. And ev- basically every year we will find at least one new tattoo. And what's exciting for me about that is it, it fills in the gaps between the, the zero that we started with and this heavily tattooed woman. And now I'm finding what are probably people with fewer tattoos. I'm also seeing which of her tattoos are really unique to her and which of the ones that she had do we find more broadly. So it's exciting because we're filling in the gaps between this one woman and, and everybody else. And we're demonstrating that obviously she was not someone that just showed up one day and decided she was addicted to tattooing. But rather, this is something that was being practiced much more broadly at the site than we had ever before realized. I mean, and that—that's again what struck me so much about the the Gabeline examples that had been, you know, they'd been brought to London in the nineteenth century, and like no one had noticed they had tattoos, you know, and people had looked at them every day for you know more than a hundred odd years, and it took modern imaging techniques to reveal them, and you know, if you don't know what you're looking for. Um, whether it's like you know using modern imaging techniques or just looking in that bag over there in your in your case, um, you don't quite know what you're going to find. And I think yeah, the more the more data points we have, um, the more rich this this interconnected story becomes. I mean, I also I was really struck by again with the with the Scythian Pazaric mummified bodies, where again for a long time they hadn't found any tattooed men and now they have some tattooed men from that cultural tradition and um there was also some questions about like status because again some of the, the first ones they found were all from very highly uh high status burial places and but now they found more from lower status so you know if every, every guess you're going to make about oh this must have been a uh, just for women or must have been high status you're, you're always going to be limited by the number of specimens you have and data points you have to make that argument right Exactly. That's that's my hope is that any statements I make about the with the norms of tattooing today yeah. it will be wrong by the time yeah, yeah, I yeah. talk to you next. So I I think we are starting with such a small data set that we can only make important discoveries basically with every new person that we're looking at. It's it makes it um, for me it really exciting because I like 
to prove myself wrong with the next thing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So it's coming. <laughs> This is good. I mean, this is important, right? Because again, I think a lot of, I try and tell my undergraduates this, there is this naive sense when you're starting off in research that you want to prove yourself right. And a, a lot of the problems I think with like, you know, it's stuff that I mainly have studied on 19th and 20th century tattooing. It's like, oh, criminals are the people who have tattoos because if you go to a library, the only tattoos that you'll find are in prison records. We, can blame, look, the, we can blame the Italians for that one. Yeah, and the French actually. The French have a bit of role to play in that too. Um, but if you if you don't have a sense of yeah, the, the evidence that's going to prove you wrong, you're going to get in trouble. And I think one of the things that struck me so much about your work, Anne, is that it's clear that for a very long time, uh, people who were writing about tattoos in passing weren't weren't trying to think about it in that way, right? Yeah, exactly. I think the the knowledge of them, because we also didn't have new evidence to force us to yeah. reevaluate our old evidence, I think it just got passed down that these are the norms. And so it got passed down that, of course, if you found a woman with tattoos in ancient Egypt, it was a sign of sex work because that's what had been said. And so it, I understand it's hard to do all the literature reviews of every possible <laughs> subject that you're writing about. But this gives us, as we get new discoveries, it gives us more opportunities to reevaluate so. our old evidence. So were you, were you into tattooing at all before that you stumbled across this woman? Did you have tattoos? Was tattooing something you'd be interested in in the Egyptian context or otherwise? So I, I had my first tattoo before I found her. So I, I can say that. <laughs> And I've, uh, I, people ask, I've never gotten an Egyptian style tattoo because I am yeah. worried that could affect my objectivity that if I prove myself wrong, yeah. it's permanent, <laughs> right? Um, but I was, so I did have a tattoo before I started, but I really had no, I mean, talking about like, I didn't even think about the idea that the ancient, I assume maybe didn't tattoo themselves. Um, and I think most people did as well. So it was completely, from my research perspective, completely out of left field. But when I introduced myself, I explained that I'm really approaching it from both the study of Egyptology and the study of bioarchaeology. And I can't think of a better opportunity than studying Egyptian symbols physically, permanently placed in human remains. Yeah. And what's what's been the reaction to like, if mainstream is quite the right word, but I mean, there's basically you and um, Renee Friedman, right? Are the kind of go-to Egypt tattoo people. Like, what's been the what's been the reaction to your work and this portion of your work from from colleagues? I think very positive. I uh, I will say this: when I started studying the human remains at Darul Medina, there was some question about the issues I just described. That they're so commingled. What can you really learn? Is that going to tell us more about the site we know so much about because there's, it's so richly documented? And the, the research I had done before the tattooing didn't get as much traction as the tattooing did. It's much easier to convince Egyptologists that your research is <laughs> worthwhile when you have Egyptian symbols built into it. So <laughs> I, I think that helped um, help people see that actually, yes, the study of bioarchaeology in Egypt is very important for the study of ancient Egypt itself. And uh, more broadly, there's a, there's the Egyptology is at a point in the field where we I think it's a, as a discipline still lags behind many other archaeologies and many other studies of the ancient world, and it's catching trying to catch up as quickly as it can now. So, for example, we just had a volume 
come out uh, about women in ancient Egypt is this edited volume from American University Press in Cairo. And it is a really amazing opportunity. It's got dozens of scholars that are trying to really bring us up to the 21st century in the study of, of women in the ancient world. So I wrote for that. And um, I think that the discipline is ready for, for work like this. So it's definitely being received well. Because it feels like, you know, I, I, the whole of academia is going through this post-colonial turn, as it should be. But of course, like studies of the ancient world, particularly studies of Egypt, in loads of ways is really you know, one of the kind of key friction points for this, for the post-colonial histories of uh, several disciplines, not just archaeology. Um, and it feels like this kind of work, which is kind of not just finding new evidence, but also re-examining the kind of methodological errors of the past, like has a kind of really broad set of conversations to have other than just like, hey, tattoos are cool, right? Right. And I think it helps us see why we need to diversify those fields too. Um, because as soon as you do, it's easier for people to see the holes in these prior arguments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, as I said, I, I've, I, I, when I first saw that photo, you know, you, as you said, it got a lot of traction, and I first saw it in the kind of pop, you know, in the media context on a news alert, and it just like, just blew me away because it, it transformed everything I thought I knew about this stuff. So yeah, it's just it's very exciting. And you're now, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, we hadn't met before, but you're now, you've, you've now sort of fallen into this weird group of like people that, you know, of like Aaron and Luke and Lars and all these people that um, we, we, we have a little kind of little, little weird little gang. And um, <laughs> we, yes, I'm very happy to be part of that gang. <laughs> well, we're very suspicious. We're very suspicious of newcomers to it, right? Because lots of people who come into it, and this sounds awfully gatekeeping, I don't mean to, but, you know, we've all been around a long time and we've seen a lot of bad stuff right people who sort of stumble into tattooing or 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 a light on tattooing as something that is more interesting than whatever they were doing before and it's it's kind of rare sadly for someone like yourself to come along and really do very serious very you know properly groundbreaking work that's 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 new discoveries and methodologically um uh, advanced and yeah like that sounds very smug of me to say, I suppose, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I, as I said, there, there are lots of people trying to do this stuff and not many people doing it with the care and sensitivity and, you know, novelty that you are around, actually. Well, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> I don't know how to take that compliment, but I appreciate that a lot. It's great feedback to have. I think it was maybe fortunate that even though I had a tattoo, I had no, I, I liked tattoos i wasn't approaching it as somebody who's fetishizing tattooing yeah i think that's it i think that was that was very helpful uh from my perspective because it wasn't actually it was about studying tattooing it was about studying how tattooing fit in this puzzle that we didn't even know it was a piece in because i wonder i wonder what would have happened if like you know louis keimer who is the the main guy who was writing about tattooed Egyptians and sex workers. I wonder what would happen if he'd have found this woman, if he'd have gone, oh, she's like queen of the sex workers. This is a brothel. Like whether he would have, whether he would have taken the same evidence. Yeah, no, I, well, it's interesting because so Bernard Brier, who was the excavator of my site, he had found some possible tattoo marks that he said were possible tattoo marks on figures and depictions of women. And he wrote about it and he actually did have more of this, um, he, he argued, maybe this is a sign of the family. Maybe this is connected to 
worship of the family. And you, you can read Lunikheimer's response to that in his book. I have and to. He, <laughs> he is like, that is ridiculous. And he essentially implies that they may have been mothers, but that was a byproduct of their work. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, so I think we both know what he would have done if he had been found. <laughs> Uh, I could talk to you forever. I hope we'll talk again. We're coming up to the uh, about an hour of recording time, but like, uh, where can people read more of your stuff? Like, what have you got coming up? Oh my gosh! So I have um, so my Instagram handle, which I I will admit I don't post often, but when I have something, I will post it there. Is uh, Anne Austin underscore PhD? It's Anne N E A U S T I N. Um, you're welcome there. I also, for this woman that we talked about so much today, you can find her article. It's open source. It's written by myself and Cedric Gobeil, G-O-B-E-I-L. And I recommend anyone listening who wants to learn more to check out that article because we have pictures of her. You can learn about her context. You can learn more about what we think, who we think she was, which we didn't talk about too much in this conversation um, and then I uh, will hopefully have new and exciting opportunities for you guys to see what's happening with their, our most recent discoveries coming out in coming months. So I just had a few articles come out in this past fall, um, and I always post at least one accessible way to, for people to le- learn about it so that you don't have to read a full academic article to get the gist of what's going on. And yeah, I mean, please come back on again. We'll have you back anytime. You can either oh, talk right. about mummies or we can force you to watch the mummy and talk about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can look at the tattoos of the mummy and talk about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, thank you very much, Anne, for coming on the show. And thank you for everyone at home who's listening. Um, it, I don't know if this is going to go out for free or behind the paywall first, but uh, if you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more, you can find us on all streaming platforms we assume you're listening to it on a streaming platform and not being blasted over some sort of loudspeaker in some sort (laughs) of a detention center or public space we're used as a deterrent for teenagers from hanging outside dominoes but i also want to thank our patrons as well if you'd like to support the show and hear more episodes like this early or more bonus episodes you can subscribe for as little as five pounds a month it's the cost of a pint I'm sure if you met me or Matt, you'd probably buy us a pint, but you can give us money or, instead. Or throw one over us. Yes, or throw one. Um, but if you subscribe at £10, you get a wonderful shout-out. And if you subscribe at £15, you get a signed copy of Matt's book that he puts in an envelope and seals with a kiss. But with that in mind, uh, I want to thank all of our patrons, Morpheus Rana, uh, Morpheus Ravenna, Sigrun Braga, Mav Mess, Matt Landis, Matt Daniels, Kirsten w- Wright, Kathleen Burkhardt, Gary O'Sullivan, our super secret patron, Colin Danaher, Charlie Lightning, and Adrian Lau. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. And thank you from me, Matt. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Talk to you. Bye bye.